opening Orchard Street. Good to be with you again this morning, and um, I'm going to confess a couple things. Uh, I'm in this text uh, in a different place than I've typically been preaching. I've, I've spent a lot of time with this text in John chapter 4, dealing with the Samaritan woman, the, the friction between the Samaritans and the Jews, and, and in this case, I'm not actually going to spend much of any time uh, talking about that, because what I want to take a look at is this claim that Jesus makes for being uh, for giving living water. Um, and before I get into that, I want to tell you that I am a sweater. <laughs> Not like the kind you put on on chilly days. I mean like when I work out, I sweat. Gallons of water. And I, I thought for a long time, well, that's just because I'm a little bit overweight. And then I lost about 80 pounds. Found them all again. Lost about 80 pounds. <laughs> And was still a sweater. Uh, and so I realized maybe this is just how God wired me. And so um, 10 years ago, Kim and I uh, started a hobby, habit. We started off on an adventure. And t- 10 years ago, we went on our first bike tour. Are you familiar with bike touring? It, it, it's, it's kind of like backpacking. You know, people put on a backpack and they go out into the wilderness and they bring all their supplies with them. We do that on a bicycle instead. And we decided our first big adventure for cycle touring, we were going to go um, and we were going to start in Spokane, cross over the Continental Divide into Montana, turn around and come back. And like any novice, we decided to go on a route that nobody had tried before. In the wilderness. I'm still here. I'm not dead. So there was a measure of success with the entire process. And, uh, but, but recognizing my own insecurity with water, uh, I, to this day, bring more water on my bike with me than anyone else can possibly, because I burn right through it. I, if I stop sweating, there's something wrong with my system, right? So on a typical ride, even from our house right now, I'll load up two water bottles just to ride from um, where I live, close to Jefferson Park, all the way down to uh, Point Ruston and back. I'll bring two water bottles with me. My bride will barely consume half of one. Now, I always have more water than I need every time. Now, but for our first bike tour, recognizing that we were riding into the wilderness and we were going to spend about 50 miles and all day only surrounded by bears and mountain lions and literally no humans, I packed a lot of water. Liters and liters of water because we are not going to run out. You know, they say that a a person can survive for like three weeks without food and three days without water. I don't think I can survive riding for three hours without water. And so day after day after day, we started, at, we started our, our ride and I'd load up my camelback and I'd strap it on the back of my bike and we would go and day after day after day, it was an eight day tour, um, that camelback was completely full. The bladder was completely loaded and I never needed it. And I thought, okay. And on the, I think it was the fifth day. I think it was the fifth day. We finally hit a stretch where we weren't going into unknown territory. 
we were following a river. We were in this. In fact, we were we were joining the the Coeur d'Alene, uh, the Trail of Coeur d'Alene, if you're familiar with that, on our return route. And it's paved, and it's nice, and it's beautiful, and it's like a park. I mean, like if you look at it on a map, there's green space around it. So that means people, right? And we already knew that there was a water supply. And if there's a water supply, and I have a pump to be able to pump and filter water, I'm, I'm telling you, I have a really redundant system here. I thought, okay, this is not going to be a problem. This time I will show my trust that I'm planning and I did not fill up my camelback. And we started riding alongside a river with signs every half mile posted, do not pump and filter this water. Filters are not going to clean it. It is contaminated with heavy metals. So five mile, five days into this trip, never needing any of my water reserves, never even using the pump that I packed just in case. And we looked at the map and we're like, here we are, we're going to be alongside water. No big deal. I didn't load up the camelback. I didn't fill up two water bottles and I just brought my pump smugly, knowing that at any time I could stop and fill up my water bottles as we rode alongside this polluted river. I didn't know it was polluted, but we discovered that, and so we went 30 miles, maybe more, in the hot Idaho summer with virtually no provision for water and nothing that we could drink until apparently this is a more common mistake than you'd think. A a park ranger was driving along in a little golf cart with a big cooler on the back filled with ice water. Um, I don't trust maps or anything, any other planning anymore. I ta- I'm, I'm back to taking more than I need. <laughs> I will always plan for more water than I need. And since then, uh, since then, I, I feel like we've been a little bit more successful with our, um, our bike tours and our planning since then. Um, but if I were to ask you uh, what water means to us, the answer is you'd say, well, I really don't think about it. If you live in certain areas in Washington, you, you can never get away from water. I mean, water that you could drink. Uh, my, my family grew up uh, in Aberdeen and Hoquiam, and my grandparents have backyards that are peat bogs. I mean, there's water everywhere up here. But what does water mean to a desert culture Because when Jesus starts talking about the living water, he means something really profound. Uh, It it has a context. And I'm going to confess, I enjoyed doing my preparation for this uh, lesson because it brought me to some texts that I've not normally studied. And we're going to get to uh, John chapter 4, but we're going to take a little bit to get there because by the time Jesus is talking to this woman at the well, there was already a concept about what water meant. And when he said living water, it just meant more of that. And so I want to back up and take a look at what water meant to the people of Israel who lived in a desert culture, right? And, and first, I want, to, I want to go over to Ezekiel chapter 47. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 47, we usually stop. Ezekiel's a long book. Nobody ever gets to the end and they read this. We stop at the Valley of Dry Bones and we're like, oh, can it get better? Well, Ezekiel has this imagery in chapter uh, 47 
where he talks about the water that flows from Jerusalem and from the temple. Here's what he says. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced west. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured out a thousand cubits. That's about a quarter of a mile. Okay. He measured out a thousand cubits, about a quarter of a mile. Uh, and then he led me through the water and it was ankle deep. And again, he measured a thousand and he led me through the water and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and he led me through the water and it was waist deep. And then he measured a thousand and it was a river and I could not pass through, right? So the vision right here that Ezekiel is communicating to us is that here in the center of Jerusalem, where the temple is, there is this trickle. It starts out as this tiny thing. You barely notice it. It's scooting out under the foundations, moving right past Jerusalem and it's heading southeast. And in a quarter of a mile, it's up to your ankles. A quarter of a mile past that, it's up to your knees, then your waist, and then it is a river that you cannot ford, right? Um, and again, he measured, verse 5, and again, he measured a thousand. And it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river, and as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees, on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes into the Arabah and enters the sea. Do you know, that sea is, there's only one sea in the east. And by the way, if you haven't pictured this yet, he's describing something that geographically is impossible. Uh, water cannot flow from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea. There are mountains in the way. But he says in this vision, he saw this water that started in the temple in Jerusalem and it flows to the east and it just increases in volume more and more. Every quarter, every quarter mile, it increases by a discernible amount. Do you know how far away the Dead Sea is from Jerusalem? Because it's, it pours into the Dead Sea 15 miles away. 15 miles away, he says, it pours into the Dead Sea. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. You're familiar with the Dead Sea, right? Right. The Dead Sea. Uh, um, uh, 33 parts per uh, million. It is, it is something like 20 to the order of 20 times saltier than the ocean. It, it is so salty, it is almost twice as salty as the Great Salt Lake in Utah. The Great Salt Lake in Utah can only support brine shrimp. It's the only, the only type of macroscopic life that can live in the Great Salt Lake. And in the Dead Sea, do you know what lives? Nothing. Unless, on the rare occasions, we get inundated with flooding, and then there, is, there, there are about three types of algae 
that can bloom in the Dead Sea and live, but not normally. And so the Dead Sea is shrinking and it's getting just saltier. It has only a couple sources of fresh water. The Jordan that flows from the north. It has uh, in Gedi, actually, a little um, geyser that pours down into it. And then we discovered five years ago by through scuba gear, actually a, a pretty excellent feat to be able to actually swim down in the Dead Sea, by the way. <laughs> You're very buoyant. Um, but, but, but through scuba gear, we discovered that there are freshwater fissures that actually feed the Dead Sea underneath. So there's only three sources of fresh water, but nothing leaves, which means it all evaporates and the sea only gets saltier and saltier and saltier. In Jesus' time, it was dead. In Ezekiel's time, it was dead. It was the Dead Sea. And, and this is the picture of this sea. He says, when the water flows to the sea, the water will become fresh. Verse 9. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea might become fresh so that everything, uh, so that everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Englame. It will be a place of the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. In other words, you're going to see in the Dead Sea so many different kinds of fish. It's just like fishing out in the Mediterranean. Every kind imaginable. This dead body of water will become will come alive because this river that that I, I don't know, by a magnitude of 10 every quarter mile. I don't know even how to describe what Ezekiel is saying as this river just becomes this torrent. After 15 miles, there's so much pouring into the Dead Sea that it is not salty anymore. It supports life. And at the edge of each of, uh, at each edge of this river, there are trees, he says, that, that, uh, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm sorry. Um, Uh, Verse 12, and on the banks on both sides of the river where there will grow all kinds of trees for food, their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month. I'd like to see a tree that does that. (laughs) Because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. So it's the source of the water. It's the source of the water that is providing life. Life for the desert, life for the trees, life for the people who eat the fruit from the trees, life for the Dead Sea and the people that fish now in the Dead Sea. So Ezekiel has this grand vision that the source of water coming from the temple flows out of Jerusalem across mountains into the Dead Sea and here where nothing could live because it was poisoned, now is life. he says, their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Um, man, we don't, we don't know what a water source, uh, what, what a thing it is to have a water source because we're surrounded by it. But in the desert, you plan your trips based on the water source. You plan how far you can travel and how much you pack based on your water source. Uh, The water will either feed the land and then feed you, or it will not. 
And so the water, the presence of water, um, is fills the literature. And, and I'm almost embarrassed to say this. It's everywhere in the Old Testament, uh, people's relationship with the water, and yet I, I ignore it because I've grown up in the Pacific Northwest. Right? So, so presuming that you weren't raised with Jewish scriptures and you weren't raised in the desert, I, I just want to give you a brief overview. Um, uh, water represents primarily two things that I can see in scripture, right? The very first one is it represents God's blessing and his care for people. Conversely, if we receive the blessing and care of God through water and rain, that makes us dependent on him. Right. Uh, so, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 11 and 12 says, but then the land that you are going to, this is God who's taken them out of Egypt and he's bringing them. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is this is funny. Uh, comparing two lands, right? One that receives zero rainfall, which is Egypt, and then the promised land, which receives very little. Comparing two deserts is like night and day. This is what Jesus uh, This is what this is what uh, God is saying. But the land that you are going to. Possess is a land of hills and of valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven. A land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from beginning of the year to the end of the year. He's describing, so he's describing here what Israel has experienced in Egyptian captivity, right? Now, Egypt is an interesting place. You know that they get almost zero appreciable rainfall. If you leave Alexandria right there at the Nile Delta and you move just a little bit south into modern-day Cairo, there is zero, zero rain, zero. Not, cannot be measured by point zero zero one. Cannot be measured. There is no rain. And yet, Egypt, all throughout antiquity, has been a place where civilization has thrived, invented chariots. Egypt is this technological bulwark. And that's because the Nile. Every year, seasonally, the Nile would flood. And occasionally when the Nile... And, and, and so because they knew that, they actually created channels prepared for the Nile to flood. And when the Nile flooded, it actually watered all their crops. On the, on the years that the Nile did not flood, guess what? The river's just a little lower. Buckets can take care of that urns can take care of that. And so they could still get the water and they could go and they could water the land. In other words, if you're going to thrive in Egypt, you're going to do it by the work of your own hand to go fetch the water. Now, God is contrasting Egypt with this land that he's giving them, which is, by the way, by our standards, still a desert. But he's comparing this to Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. He says, God himself takes care of this. You don't have to take care of it by human effort. The water will come from the sky. It will come from the rain. So God contrasts these two and he says, if you're in Canaan, it's going to be blessed by water that comes directly from me. Um, when, when Hosea talks about all the things that went wrong in his relationship with Israel, uh, in God's relationship with Israel, Hosea spends a lot of time uh, speaking on behalf of God with God opining about going back to the days where Israel was being led by the hand in the desert. It's, it's really strange. If you read, through, you read through the original accounts, you're going to think that God wasn't really enjoying himself with Israel. They're grumbling all the time. Everybody's complaining. But in Hosea, that, that was the honeymoon. 
God leading his people by a pillar of fire at night, a pillar of cloud during the day. When they needed something, he provided it. Bread from heaven, manna came down, quail, he fed them. And when they were thirsty, from a rock, from a rock, the waters came. So you have this idea that, uh, that, that here, as God takes his people and he leads them out, this is about as good as it gets. You have God's people who are depending on him and only him to provide for them. And here you have God providing for them literally ev- everything that they need. Uh, he provides for them food. He provides for them leadership. He provides for them water coming from a rock, right? And, and by the way, in case, in case you want to know how important that water is from the rock, a handful of times, uh, a handful of times, we hear about people who, if this happens, then kick them out of the camp. You you do realize if you're wandering around in the desert with no water sources and you're kicked out of the camp, that's a death sentence. You know that, right? That's a death sentence. Okay. So here's God, and He has His people, and He's protecting them, and He's caring for them, and He's giving them everything that they need. We find out later. In 1 Corinthians, that Paul says, oh, that rock, by the way, is Christ. Right? Okay. So here you have, you have God leading his people in the middle of the wilderness. Um, Moses sinned. Do you remember what Moses' sin was? Yeah. Do you need us to give you water again? And God says, because ah, you did not give the glory to me. You claimed it for yourself. Right? There's something about God providing for his people is central to the nature of who he is. The relationship of water going to the land to nourish the land and the people is central to this idea of who God is as he provides for them. Uh, so, so <laughs> and, oh, and by the way, when they finally get to the promised land and they look around and they're like, hey, it does flow with milk and honey. This is great. They decided that maybe the person who takes care of that land is better than the God that led them out of the desert. And so they asked around about who it was, and they said, well, his name is Baal. He comes and he brings the rain, and he takes care of the land. And Israel, for years, for decades, hundreds of years even, has this identity crisis. Because while they believe that God can provide for them maybe wandering around in the wilderness, here they are where Baal seems to be taking care of everything. Maybe Baal's the guy we should be worshiping. And, and if you're a Bible nerd, you'll know this. The Bible, at least four places, describes God, Yahweh, as coming in, riding on the clouds. You know that, that song? Behold, he comes, riding on the clouds. There's a new song. All right. um, in Canaanite literature, that's Baal's job. Before Israel ever came there, they believed that Baal brought the rains. He came and he rode in like a chariot with the clouds and he brought rain to take care of the entire land. So here Israel comes and they're like, well, what should we do? And every, every farmer is pretty, um, pretty attentive to what brings rain and what takes care of the crops. And since everyone was a farmer, they thought maybe Baal would take care of this better than God would. Although God is truly the one who brings the rain. They believed maybe it was Baal. It all leads to this great climax where Elijah has a showdown 
on a mountain made of caramel. <laughs> Some of you are like, that sounds awesome. <laughs> so showdown with Elijah on Mount Carmel, right? 450 prophets of Baal. For three and a half years, Scripture tells us that the skies were completely shut up. There was no rain, famine all throughout the land. And, and we always think that the crescendo is here, they're, <laughs> they're, they're all calling and praying for Baal, and, and Elijah, oh, well, maybe you need to call a little bit harder, maybe he's taking a nap, wake him up a little bit, right? All the goading that goes on. Finally, Elijah prays, and the fire comes down, consumes not just the altar, but all the stones, everything that's been covered in water. And you think that that's the victory. But it's not. Because right then, on the heels when they know that God is the only God who has the power. God does the thing that everyone believes Baal does. He opens up the heavens into this floodgate. And Elijah says, you better leave and get home before your chariots get stuck in the mud. Right. The person who brings the rain, the person who provides water in the desert, provides care. Not just for the land, for the livestock and for the people and for everybody. And so everywhere, everywhere in the Old Testament, this is a a presumption that God is able to care for people because he brings for them water. The biggest identity crisis he had when the people went into Canaan was being reminded that Baal didn't bring the water, God did. So this same prophecy in Ezekiel, where he talks about the water that flows from Jerusalem and then it goes off to the east and then it fills the Dead Sea and suddenly everything is filled with life. It's revisited a little bit differently about um, 70 years later in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. But with Zechariah, he does this just a little bit differently. In Zechariah... It is not just associated with the idea of God's blessing and care, but God's power and sovereignty and rule and reign. And this prophecy is actually very similar to the one in Ezekiel, maybe a variant of the same idea. He just expands on it, right? In Zechariah chapter 14, he says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. When the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Israel to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the horse and the houses plundered, and the women raped, and half of the city will go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out, and he will fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. And... Uh, And on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee 
to the valley of my mountains, and the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as though you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones will go with him. And on that day there will be no light or cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known only to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. And on that day living waters... This is the first time we see living waters associated with this type of prophecy. He says, On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, and half of them will go to the eastern sea. Ah, now we know how they get through. <laughs> and he says, And half of them will go to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be the king over all the earth. And on that day the Lord, uh, the Lord will be one, and his name one. You see, this prophecy is now revisited again, that God can still provide rivers that bring the land to life. And this now is associated not just with God being able to provide for his people in the desert and God's care, but his rule on the day of the Lord. On the day of the Lord, here is what will happen. Living waters will go out of Jerusalem and they will provide for the land and they'll go to the right and they'll go to the left. And, uh, and on this day, on this last day, it'll be living water. Uh, this idea of water being associated with God's reign is also found in Jeremiah chapter 2, 100 years earlier, where he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, hear, hear the claim in Jeremiah. My people have forsaken me because they decided they needed to hoard water. Instead of depending on me to send the water to provide for the land, they have taken it and put it in cisterns. They've depended on themselves, and those are broken cisterns anywhere. They're not really going to provide for you. They're not really going to care for you. Uh, my people have abandoned me. Um, they have uh, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel now a slave or a home-born servant? Why then has he become prey? In other words, Israel, you are a citizen under God's reign. Bringing the living water to you is a privilege of being a part of God's reign. Why are you acting as though you are a slave? So you get all of this stuff, right? This is all a part of it. Now you get to John chapter 4. And suddenly, suddenly a different part of the text comes alive. This isn't just the friction of the um, the... Samaritans versus uh, the Jews. This is this is all uh, new stuff when you start talking about the role of living water, right? So, chapter four, verse one. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus, uh, John, chapter four, verse one. Now, when the 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 Jew, uh, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the, the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well. Jacob? Israel? J- Jacob changed his name to Israel. Israel had 12 sons. They became the 12 tribes, right? I'm, I'm just 
orienting you to who Jacob is because she's going to make a claim about the greatness of Jacob. Right? Okay. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well and it was about the sixth hour and a woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. That text obviously treats it really lightly. The the terminology is they don't don't even use dishes that Samaritans have used. That's literally what the Hebrew says. You won't use my utensils after I use them. And that is a reflection of how deep the divide was between the Jews and the Samaritans. Um, it is not that the Samaritans were radically different from the Jews. In fact, if you were to meet a Samaritan in the first century, you would think that they were a Jewish person. They worship and confess God exactly, well, they confess God exactly the same way. They have most of the same laws. They observe the same five books uh, of the law. The only difference and this is substantial, is that as a a vestige of being a part of the northern kingdom after it was destroyed, is that they set up a temple in Mount Gerizim and they worshipped God there. They had established their own priesthood to worship there and serve God there. But in all other ways that we know, including the cash root laws, eating pork, not eating pork, all the things that make somebody Jewish, Jewish, they did those. In fact, based on many historical accounts, some people believe that the Samaritans were probably more moral than the Pharisees. Okay? They're very religious people. There's just this deep dispute about where you worship God, if it's going to be in Jerusalem or on the mountain, on Mount Gerizim, right? And uh, and so, you, but that, that divide is so deep that now people say, well, Jews don't even eat with the same forks that Samaritans ate with. So she says, um, <laughs> the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you would you ask for a drink from me, a, Samar- a woman of Samaria, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Please tell me that you've already noticed that that Jesus, who represents living water, right? He says, if you'd asked me, I'd have given you living water, right? The water that is a blessing from God that provides life for the land is not something that you draw up from the river. It's something that God provides. Okay. Now, so here's Jesus and he's at this well and this has massive significance because both the Samaritans and the Jews all acknowledge, they all acknowledge that Jacob is the father of all of them, right? Jacob, uh, the uh, uh, Israel and all the 12 tribes, they all come from the same lineage, right? This is, this is the same place where Joseph was uh, betrayed by all of his brothers. It's the same place where his entire family had been settled. It's the same place where when the well dried up, 
presuming. Whatever happened, the well wasn't enough to support Joseph's family because when famine hit, they went to Egypt. Right? Remember that story? Okay. All right. So she's asking him. <laughs> she, she's like, the woman says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And the answer should be on the tip of our tongues. It only comes from God. Right? Uh, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And if you'll remember, that well was not enough. It wasn't. Famine hit. The entire family had to pack up. That's when Joseph, uh, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Remember those Bible stories? Yeah. This is the same well that was supposed to provide for him, his livestock, and his land. And either it dried up or it wasn't sufficient. And Jesus said to her, Well, everyone who drinks of this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Later on, When Jesus pried a little bit about her personal life and it became really uncomfortable, she changed the whole topic and she's like, hey, let's talk about something lighter. Like, you think worshiping Jerusalem is good or is this mountain okay? (laughs) Um, Jesus tells her, will you worship what you do not know and we worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming. Hear me now. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Right? So, sure, um, if you believe that Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim is a center of God's activity and that's where everybody is blessed, there's going to come a point in time where it's not either of those. The true worshipers are going to worship him in spirit and in truth. When you get over to John chapter 7, it's the second time in the Gospel of John where he specifically talks about the living water. And in John chapter 7, starting with verses 1 and 2, it says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go back to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. And if you're not familiar, that's the Feast of Tabernacles. This is the time when the Jews celebrated their wandering in the desert, right? They wandered around in the desert. They set up booths, tabernacles, tents, and they wandered. God provided for them water from the rock. He provided for them manna from heaven. And later, just a little bit later, verses uh, 37 following, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. This is, this is at the feast where everybody, where everybody is remembering God's providence and his care for God's people in the desert, right? Water coming from the rock. And Jesus cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and to drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, Jesus doesn't make the claim that he is the source of living, that he is the living water, but he does make the claim that he is the source 
of living water. Just a little bit later, he says, Now this was said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So here's what Jesus is saying. If you want access to living water. Now what is living water in Scripture? Well, if water produces life, and water shows us that God cares for us and provides us, living water is at least that, (laughs) if not more, right? So he says, uh, and, and according to this text, the living water is the Holy Spirit. Now, here, here's, where I am, uh, here's where I'm going with this. Jesus says that if you drink from the living water, you will never thirst again. Water all throughout the Old Testament represents God's blessing for his people, for his land, his provision, and his care. And when God's reign truly is made perfect, there will be no one who thirsts anymore. Now, Jesus gives us the living water, but it's not water. It is the Spirit. I don't have more time. But the imagery of the Spirit being poured out on mankind is powerful. How is it? I ask this question as um, innocently as I can. How is it that we can live in a time uh, where Our needs are so wildly provided for us that we live better than any generation before us, better than almost any other standard of living around the world. We drive nice cars that start the moment you do this, or for some of us, this. How is it you don't have to leave your house to turn on water? How is it that we can live in the most privileged land, cared for, and yet live with the fear that we live with sometimes? It is is an an epidemic. I talked a little bit about this last week. Um, It is an epidemic, the amount of anxiety, the number of 30-somethings and 20-somethings in our country right now that are in therapy and on medication because of anxiety and fear and depression. And if you ask the average person, 30, 40, even 50, about the state of our country or the future of of their household or their security, they will be filled with anxiety not knowing what the future holds, not knowing if public policy is going to change and somehow drastically change their uh, standard of living. They're not sure if Social Security is still going to be around by the time they're ready to tire. There, there, there are so many reasons for people to feel insecure despite the fact that we live in maybe the most privileged, blessed nation and place in the world. And yet, through all of those physical blessings, fear reigns.
Um, and I'll just kick that around from my perspective. Um, for five days on a bike tour, I prepared and packed based on the fear that there would not be enough. And on the one day that I did not, what I could not see was that my needs would be met. That God would care for me anyway. Now, all this to say, I don't believe that we are ever going to feel the security of God's care and his provision for us by planning. I know that, 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 that that's not a normal thing for me to say because I like to plan. I'm a planner. Okay, on this day we're doing this. On this day we're doing this. On this day we're doing this. But, but the problem is by my own human merit, what it does is it, it limits my ability to know, see, and understand that God is truly the one providing for me. And so this imagery that God sends the rain to provide for the land means that we depend on God. God actually liked that with Israel. He liked knowing that his people depended on him and that he could care for them. And I think that God does exactly the same thing for us. Thankfully, it's not with torrential downpours in the Northwest, but he does provide for us the Holy Spirit. And do you realize how many times in Scripture the Holy Spirit is described in ways that land right here? He's the comforter. The Spirit is the comforter. He's the helper. If we are drinking from the living water, I do not believe we have a reason to be afraid of tomorrow. Because we know that God provides for us. And so, uh, here's, here's the question I want to ask you. If you're afraid of something... What is it that you're afraid of? And is that fear greater than your trust in God? That brought people, that brought the nation of Israel back to God over and over and over again to acknowledge that God is the good one who provides for them what they need. Now, I personally believe, and you're not going to find a text that says this, but I believe that if the water provides life and goodness and sustenance for the people of God in the Old Testament, living water provides for us life and goodness for this life and the next. And I believe it also gives me the courage when I'm surrounded by so many things that are unknown to live with faith in God in the middle of the drought, whatever it is. It allows you to have faith in God in the middle of the drought. If that describes you, that describes you. I don't know what you're going through. Maybe it's an unemployment. Maybe it's the loss of somebody you love. I don't know what the drought is in your life, but there are plenty of reasons and plenty of ways that Satan likes to instill fear in us. If that describes you, I want you to know that you can trust in God, the source of the living water. And he will renew you through his spirit. And if you need to respond, the invitation is open.
I want to encourage you to respond in any way you need to. If you need the prayers of this church, you need to put on Christ in baptism. Crazy that the Holy Spirit is also associated with water. Uh, But I don't have time. (laughs) But if you need to respond, let us know how we can serve you and help you by coming forward as we stand and sing.